you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. If you're looking for trouble, just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green eyed mountain jack because I'm evil. My middle name. Hello everyone and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and the entertainment industry as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, editor-at-large at SlashFilm.com, and joining me today, he is the man who played Baker on the NBC original series, Shannon's Deal, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very good. Uh, you know, I love it when you bring up these strange parts <laughs> that I haven't thought about in 10, 15 years. Now, is, was, is Baker your name or is it your profession in the show? <laughs> it was my name. It was not that small of a part. It was actually a very nice role, Baker. But there was a, a unique event that happened while playing Baker when we were doing Shannon's Deal. We were performing this at a very schnazzy hotel in downtown Los Angeles. And we were having a schnazzy dinner. And they had various waiters there bringing flaming shish kebabs to the hundred extras that were sitting there having a schnazzy dinner. But what they didn't count on was that the flaming shish kebabs would ignite the fire retardant system built into the roof of the restaurant. And while the people were being served in the background, the flames from the shish kebab ignited something and the entire room, the entire set, everybody in the room got sprayed with the fire retardant during the shoot, which is a combination of water uh, mixed with some sort of petroleum product. So it was a, it was like something from the Three Stooges movie. So not only was that scene ruined, not only was every costume ruined, but we had to go home early that day because they had to dry off the entire hotel. Nice. Well, sounds awesome. It was awesome, and I got an extra day because of it. Well, that's so, all yeah. that, that <laughs> is all that matters. All that matters in the long run, David. Stephen, <sighs> this is episode 65 of the Tobolowski Files, and uh, we have some thoughts for people who want to get maximum enjoyment out of this week's episode. Firstly... You want to catch up with the Tobolowski Files. Specifically, you want to listen to episode 59, The End and an Introduction. Make sure you check that out if you want to get some, uh, some key facts before uh, this episode begins. And we should also point out you're going to use some pretty uh, obscene language. Are you not, Tobo? I'm going to use language that's only usually heard on late night television. All right. Well, uh, keep that in mind. If you have little ones around the radio, you may not want them to be around for this one. Um, but uh, speaking of things that are obscene, Stephen, you know, yes. sometimes I uh, enjoy going to casinos. Believe me, you don't have to tell me about this, David, because I have been, I have been like baggage being drugged through. Uh, what? We went to Las Vegas together and you were off. Yeah, so and I'm still washing the smell off <laughs> from that thing you made us do. Anyway. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I am not one to judge. Uh, you can do whatever you want. Just, you know, from my point of view, I hate gambling. But to be clear, you know, I am not offended by the moral aspect of people losing their homes and marriages for the slim chance of gain. 
And it's not the lack of aesthetics of giving my money to a woman in a vest. David, it's simply I don't find it much fun. And I find the term games of chance misleading. Blackjack barely qualifies as a game, and there's almost no chance once you sit down at a card table in a casino. But, um, frankly, I wasn't always this way. No, I used to love a good card game. My father taught me how to play poker when I was six. We had a deck of 34 cards. The highest card was the Jack of Spades. Dad would get out some pennies and toothpicks. And we would play with my brother, Paul, until the pennies were gone or someone got a splinter from a toothpick. The winning hand often came down to who had the jack of spades. Now that is a card game. Sometimes mom would make popcorn and join us. We loved the popcorn. We weren't crazy about playing with mom. Her participation pushed our deck of cards to the max. And also she forgot we were playing poker and kept trying to make bridge hands, which is hard to do when you only have five cards. I grew up thinking I was a gambler. Back in the 1970s, I took my girlfriend Beth to Lake Tahoe once for a vacation. I had done some children's theater shows with Twelfth Night Repertory there, and I thought the place was the perfect combination of sugar and spice. Between the mountains and the crap tables, anyone could find something to make them happy. Beth was not that anyone. She was upset the moment she walked into the casino. I was betting the field at Craps, and she was almost in tears as she said, Please, please, don't be one of those people who gamble. I said, All right, all right, I'll leave. But just so you know, I'm up $50. Beth was unmoved. She looked at me steadily and with purpose and said, Don't you dare spend one penny of that money on me. I want nothing to do with it. She went all in. I folded never to return to a casino again, except when I was booked into one for movie shoots. Movie companies often book actors into casinos. Producers get great deals for all of the obvious reasons. Actors have a lot of time on their hands. They have a lot of expense money burning a hole in their pocket, and they have almost no sense of self-worth. It's a perfect combination. I was sent to Laughlin, Nevada for one of my first movies on location. The Philadelphia Experiment was shot in 1983, right after the wake of Jamie Foster crashed and burned on Broadway. The movie was notable for a couple of reasons. It was the last science fiction film made before George Lucas ripped the top off of the universe with Star Wars. Before Star Wars, if you can think back... Science fiction was a small, cozy genre that cropped up every now and again. They were usually big on concept, light on special effects. They were either the uncertain launching pad for a young actor on the rise or one of the last hurrahs for a fading star. They were definitely the side dish at the banquet of filmdom, not the main course. The Philadelphia Experiment was the last of the humble sci-fi films. Getting paid to stay at a casino for a week sounded like fun. I asked Beth if she wanted to join me. Not interested. I would be free to gamble without guilt. I was given $800 in cash for food and expenses. Well, I immediately embraced the idea I would not need the $800 for food. I would eat food on the set for free most of the time. I decided I would allow myself... $100 with which to experiment. 
That seemed reasonable. At this point, it didn't seem so much like throwing money out of a moving bus, but as a carefully considered investment in my future. Instead of the stock market, I was sticking my toe in the warm, shallow waters of the possible combinations of a limited set of numbers over a fixed period of time. Sounded almost prudent. It was five in the afternoon when I arrived. The casino was almost empty. I scanned the enormous room. My eye stopped at the blackjack table. There was something enticing about all of those solitary women shuffling cards. The tables had signs on them noting the minimum bet. The cheapest table I could find was $5 a hand. And even that felt rich for my blood. In high school, when I played cards for money, $5 was how much you could win in an entire evening. I wanted to make this $100 last. So the $5 table it was. I sat down in front of Sally, my dealer. I know she was Sally, because that's what it said on her vest, unless she was wearing another woman's clothes. She began dealing. She never talked. She never made eye contact, except to pick up my money. I lost my $100 in less than three minutes. Now I had to decide to bet more or walk away from Sally. I didn't want to let her down. We had a relationship. It was a relationship that was strained at the moment, but still it was a relationship. I reached into my pocket for more money just to show her I was not a cheapskate. I won my first hand. A sign of good things to come. Then I lost several in a row. I lost my second hundred dollars in three minutes. So now my eight hundred dollars was down to six hundred in the time it takes to eat a submarine sandwich. I excused myself from the table and I hurried back to my room. My visions of being James Bond, coolly piling up markers, playing Baccarat all night, lacked one thing from becoming reality. Reality. To begin with, nobody plays Baccarat. At best, it's a Euro trash version of blackjack. No one in a casino wears a tux. If you wear a tux, people will think you just got married or are part of the horn section for the stage show. The dress code for the slot machines is informal. Anything more than cargo shorts is just showing off. People in casinos are not as attractive as James Bond. It could be the lighting. It could be that the crying has smeared the mascara. But most people in a casino look more like carnival people on a holiday rather than wealthy socialites. I got to my room and looked for other sources of amusement. Perhaps Laughlin had some points of interest other than the state-line casino. I found a slender brochure by the television set saying things to do in Laughlin. All it had on the cover was a picture of the state-line casino. I turned on the TV. I could channel surf. Surf was low. They had three stations in all. Two were playing local news. The top story was concerning the growing evidence of a chicken epidemic in the area. The third channel was playing a made-for-TV movie about a checkout girl at a grocery store who gets syphilis from a brief tryst with a married man. Now, he was going to have to tell his wife why he was taking penicillin. This could have been the singularly most depressing movie I had ever seen. I secretly wondered if the casino ran this film in a loop to get people out of their rooms and back down to the card tables. I ate a turkey sandwich and headed back down for round two of my date with Lady Luck. One hundred dollars on the line. 
The casino was still sparsely populated, but the management had turned on more lights so there weren't so many ominous pockets of darkness. It was comforting being able to see what you were missing. You could hear the endless atonal jack-in-the-box music coming from the slot machines and the occasional shower of nickels, meaning someone won. I found myself more faithful than I had expected. I headed for Sally. She cracked a slight smile on half of her face as she shuffled the cards. You here on vacation? I told her no. I was working. I was an actor. She asked me if I had ever been in anything. I told her I was just in a play on Broadway. Sally said she didn't like plays. I told her she had a lot in common with the New York Times. I assured her I was a real actor and I was here working on a movie. Sally was suspicious. She asked me what kind of movie it was. I told her it was science fiction. She asked me if it had vampires in it. I told her, no, no, vampires are more like horror films. This was about science. There was a vortex in time that could swallow the earth. Sally looked disappointed. Well, I don't know about that. I like vampires. Well, Sally, I think you would like this. I said, there's lots of romance. Sally gave me another half-smile. This time it bordered on three-quarters. She asked, well, what do you do in it? I said, I play Barney the computer guy. She suppressed a grin. Well, that doesn't sound so romantic. I left. I said, well, that's not the romantic part of the movie. Sally started shuffling. I explained, see, when you have a science fiction movie, you need someone who could talk about science. That's me. Well, what do you talk about? I said, Sally, I have no idea. But it has to do with time travel and the speed of light and the end of the world. Sally frowned. That's not my cup of tea. You want to play? I looked at my small stack of chips. I reconsidered. I asked if there was a bookstore around here so I could read in my room. Sally stopped shuffling and looked at me like I was crazy. Hun, this is a casino. There aren't any bookstores around here. I, I see, I said. I, I just didn't know there would be nothing to do here but gamble and watch TV. Well, they shut the TV down at 10. They just have local news then and test patterns after that. I noticed, I said. But I heard about the epidemic. Sally shook her head. Yeah, it's bad. A lot of dead chickens. I guess that'll hurt business around here, I said. What? Well, the chickens. No, that won't stop anything. People still come in here and play. I have to tell you, Sally, I never spent any real time in a casino, and I thought it was going to be fun. You know, that I could gamble for a few hours and maybe lose a little money. I didn't expect this. I can't play for five minutes without losing a lot of what I have. Sally told me that the dealers could get fired if they don't deal enough hands per minute. I looked at her and said, well, then you better deal. She did. I lost. She said, first off, I shouldn't play blackjack at a table where no one else is playing. One-on-one -on -one against a dealer, you always lose. She said, you want a seat on the far left, dealer's right, so you can see all of the hands played and get an idea of how many big cards are still out there. She dealt again. I had a king showing. Sally stared at me and whispered, you have a king underneath? Uh, I beg your pardon, I said. Sally leaned in and restated quietly, Do you have a king underneath? 
I looked. I did. I was amazed by her clairvoyance. I nodded. Sally said, you could split a pair. I whispered back, I don't understand. Sally said slowly and precisely, you can turn that other king over, split a pair. I still had no idea what she was talking about, but something in her tone told me she would be disappointed in me if I didn't obey. So I flipped the king over. She dealt me two more cards face down, one for each king. I got a queen and a nine. Sally turned over a seven and a jack and said, dealer pays 18. She tossed me some chips for both hands. I was thrilled at how easy this game was to play. She dealt me another hand. I lost. Then I lost again. I said, Sally, I think I'm going to go take in a show. My money may last a little longer. I pushed away from the table, wandered through the casino. I came up to a couple with a huge pile of chips playing roulette. He winked at me and said, 32 red. I watched. 32 red came up about once every four or five turns. He laughed and said, the wheel is broken. Come on, put some money down. For some strange reason, I didn't believe my own eyes or the man's pile of chips. I walked on. I headed over to the stage area where I could hear a band of electric guitars and bass and keyboard revving up for their opening number, Folsom Prison Blues. It seemed like a questionable choice until I saw the band. They looked like they were all out on parole. The bass player was six foot six and weighed 100 pounds. The lead singer was a big man who wore a vest that was several sizes too small, making him look like a tube of cookie dough that was squeezed in the middle. The theater held about 400 on a good night. This wasn't a good night. There were maybe 30 people scattered around on the first three rows, but those 30 were not timid. After the opening number, someone in the audience yelled, Sing Thai Yellow Ribbon! The lead singer ignored the request and went into their next number, Hurt So Good. I thought I'd stay a while. I ordered a drink. As bad as this was, it was better than losing the rest of my money playing blackjack with Sally. At the end of the song, there was a smattering of applause. The drunken man on the second row shouted out again, Play tie a yellow ribbon! This time, the lead singer made the ill-advised decision to acknowledge him. Sir, thank you, but we've already picked out the songs we're going to play tonight. Play tie a yellow ribbon! We're not going to play Tie a Yellow Ribbon. Fuck you! Sir, I appreciate the suggestion, but we're not going to play that song. We don't know it. Pussies! We're not going to play Tie a Yellow Ribbon. Pussies! The lead singer pretended like this was all witty banner. He yelled to an imaginary waitstaff, oh, Could you please bring my friend down here another drink? He's still able to talk. Fuck you! Yeah, well, fuck you, sir. Play Tie a Yellow Ribbon. We don't know that song. We haven't rehearsed it. It's a shitty song. Don't ask us to play it again or I'm going to come down there myself and beat your head in. There was a tense pause in the show. Then the voice came up from the second row. Play Tie a Yellow Ribbon, you fat fuck. The lead singer jumped off the stage. The bass player jumped down, too. The lead singer did not beat the man's head, but put him in an arm lock and escorted him out of the theater while the remaining band members played an instrumental version of Tie a Yellow Ribbon. This was as good as any theater I had ever seen. I knew nothing could top it. 
So I left. I felt the gravitational pull bringing me back towards Sally. I was interrupted from my inertia by screams of laughter coming from another part of the casino. It was coming from the crap tables. I wandered over. There were a dozen or so empty tables waiting in the darkness. In a pool of light was one table with a cluster of about 50 people leaning in with enormous anticipation. Dice were rolled. The table erupted in screaming. The crowd shifted. I was surprised when I saw the man rolling the dice was an actor I knew. He was laughing. His girlfriend stood by his side. He shook the dice again. Let him fly. The table was silent in awful anticipation. And then he erupted in screams. One did not have to be an expert in body language to get the idea my friend lost. He shook it off, threw some more money on the table. I have to say, he looked good in defeat. I headed back over to Sally. Along the way, I took in more of the action in the mostly empty casino. The wheel of fortune was turning. My man at the roulette table was laughing, clapping his hands before an even bigger stack of chips. The roar from the crap table behind me kept breaking the white noise of the sound of money falling from slot machines and the prison band playing The Last Time by the Rolling Stones. Sally had a couple at her table. She barely noticed when I sat down on the far left dealer's right. I bought some more chips, put $5 down, drew an 18. Sally turned over 20. She dealt again. I got a 16 and stuck. Sally got a blackjack. The couple picked up their chips and left. I stayed. I told her I saw an actor friend of mine at the other end of the room. He was playing craps. Sally said she knew. He had been playing for the last few hours. The word was out that he was losing. I laughed and said, well, what else is new? Sally dealt me some more cards. I had a king and a five. Okay, 15. I asked for a hit. I got a six. I smiled and flipped it over. Sally had a 12. She flipped over a card. It was an eight. She stared into space and said, dealer pays 21. Finally, I said. Sally dealt another hand. She said, I heard your friend is losing. I asked how much. Sally shrugged and said, about $600,000 so far. What? I said. Sally nodded. I hadn't made that much money in my entire life. I asked how something like that could happen. Sally dealt the cards. She said he started off winning. Then the dice turned. He kept playing, trying to get his winnings back. Now he just won't walk away. An elderly man wearing a cowboy hat and a tattered old shearling coat walked past me dragging his oxygen tank. I shook my head and said, that's awful, Sally. To watch this, aren't there any laws to protect the defenseless? Sally shook her head and said, don't be fooled. He's one of the biggest winners around here. He's a sheep rancher up on the state border, comes here once a week, got emphysema. In that bag behind his oxygen tank, he's got a roll of $1,000 chips. He's headed for the $100 tables. You want to watch someone win, watch him. He'll play all night. He never loses. Sally, you know everybody in here. Yeah, most everybody. Most everybody here played more than once, yeah? What would you tell people about me? Sally stopped shuffling. She looked up. 
she never changed her expression. Well, I'd say he's a nice young man. He's an actor. Never seen him in anything. I laughed and said, well, at least you're honest. She said, I try to be. So do you have a feeling about me? I mean, am I a winner or a loser? Oh, you're a loser. I was taken aback by how quickly she answered. I laughed nervously. Well, what makes you say that? Sally leaned in and whispered, You're still here. I'm coming home, I've done my time. Now I got to know what is and isn't mine. If you received my letter telling you I'd soon be free, then you'll know just what to do if you still want me. If you still want me. Tie a yellow river. Gambling in a casino is nothing more than a metaphor for life. The cards reflect the whims of fortune, good and bad. The dealers represent the impersonal hand of fate. The speed with which the games are dealt corresponds with how quickly our lives pass. And the sheep rancher dragging his oxygen tank demonstrates how we always think someone is better off than we are. One of the most famous gambling metaphors in history is Pascal's wager. Pascal was a well-known mathematician and physicist in the mid-17th century. He contracted a serious illness around 1650. The illness transformed him. His constant suffering made him more interested in using his reason to prove the existence of God. He said, by virtue of the fact that we exist, we are at a gaming table and we have a bet to make. You can either wager there is a God or there isn't. There are no other choices, and it's impossible to sit the hand out. If you wager there isn't a God and you're wrong, you have made a fundamental error in understanding nature and the universe and you will suffer, both in this life from the corruption that affects all of nature and in the afterlife by whatever fate awaits us there. On the other hand, if there isn't a God and you believe there is, no harm is done. You die and that's that. The only side effect of your delusion is that you may see more purpose in life. Pascal reasons that by believing, you have everything to gain and nothing to lose. For Pascal, God was the source of everything infinite, infinite wisdom, infinite justice, and infinite mercy. Man has a natural difficulty in understanding these things, but Pascal gives us hope. He says once we accept the existence of a single number— like the difference between zero and one. We have accepted the concept of infinity. Even though we can't grasp something that never ends, we can always grasp the concept of one more. This is why casinos are open 24 hours a day. One problem Pascal does not address is that vice resembles virtue in almost every way. Take a look at the compulsive gambler the single-minded dedication to an idea, even through hardship, even through personal loss, is usually admirable. 
I can't think of any story about heroism that doesn't involve sacrifice. Right now, my sacrifice had added up to about $600. When I arrived at Laughlin, our movie account gave me $800 for food and expenses. After one week, the breakdown on the profit loss sheet would read $0 for food, $0 for expenses, $600 for blackjack. My Uncle Sylvan, the tax attorney, told me, you can know everything about a person from the profit loss sheet. Not true, Uncle Sylvan. Time is never a factor for an accountant. They're only interested in the how much, not how long did it take. Time is very important for the rest of us. It's the only way we're able to tell the difference between a vacation and exile. I could fib and say that I lost the $600 over the course of a week and that it was recreational. That is correct, but it is not true. I lost the money in less than 40 minutes, including bathroom breaks. It is accurate that the 40 minutes was scattered over a seven-day period, but it was only 40 minutes, if that. It was recreational, only in the same way that our family trips to Galveston Beach were recreational. Five of us on cots in a motel room with copper tone lotion rubbed over second-degree sunburns. The only pleasant part of the experience was that most of the 40 minutes gambling was spent with Sally. She never really talked to me, but when she gave me that cracked smile out of the side of her mouth, I felt like I belonged. Every evening after I finished shooting, I would run over and say hello. Over the course of the next three or four minutes, I'd play a half a dozen hands of blackjack in which I successfully put $100 in the virtual shredder. I would bask in the sensation of blood draining from my head. I was embarrassed. I couldn't last any longer. I couldn't help it. All of this was new to me. I had wallet interruptus. Sally would occasionally say goodbye before I ran upstairs to my room. I spent the rest of my evening sitting on my bed in absolute terror. Beth was right. I was one of those people who gambled. I knew once I came down that elevator and heard the prison band start to play, I would be defenseless. With nothing to read and only local Nevada newscasts for entertainment, I began hallucinating. I thought I saw the sheep rancher dragging his oxygen tank across my room, beckoning to join him at the $100 tables. My friends from the movie would call me up and invite me down to play. I would lie. I said I had a cold. I told them I promised Beth I would call. I had to learn my lines. I said anything I could to keep from exposing the soft underbelly of my compulsion. Whenever I weakened, I thought of my fellow thespian at the crap tables. He lost what to me would be a life savings in a few hours. One had to resist the urge to call it tragic. The dice were in his hands. It's incorrect to call it stupid, my friend. Very intelligent. There is a trend today in calling every behavior we don't like a sickness. I'm not a fan of this. It smacks of marketing. That the best way to sell an inferior product is with better packaging. I have since learned that this may not have been my fault. There's a lot of science that goes into the destruction of the human will. Casinos are designed like bad relationships. Easy to get into, hard to get out of. There are no right turns. 
there are no marked entrances or exits. You need a geological survey map to get to the elevators. There are distracting lights and sounds, all calculated to lead you deeper into the woods. They use lighting and aroma to guide you to the more expensive tables. They even pump more oxygen into the areas of the room where they want you to settle. I'm not sure who it was who devised the architecture of the lost. It's unfortunate that the same effort wasn't put into the architecture of the found. It was Sunday morning. I had finished shooting the night before. I was headed home on an afternoon flight. I packed and sat on my bed. It was two hours before my pickup. Maybe I could go down and have a sandwich. No harm in that. Since blackjack dealers don't recognize the Sabbath, maybe Sally was working, I could say goodbye. I mean, that was just good manners. I stepped out of the elevator and headed for the restaurant. The casino was busier than I expected. This was one of the nice things about Sundays in a casino. The people are better dressed. Most of them have just come from church. I saw a cluster around a blackjack table. I caught a glimpse of a dealer, and there was no mistaking that hairdo. It was Sally. I thought, well, no need for breakfast right now. Sally may go on break soon, and I would have missed the opportunity of saying goodbye. I walked over, said hello. Sally didn't say anything. She just glanced up, threw me one of her crooked smiles. That's all it took. I pulled out a stool in front of Sally, and then... I stopped and moved to the stool on the far left dealer's right. Sally nodded and dealt. She got a 20. We all lost. I said, surprised they have you working Sunday morning. Sally kept shuffling. She stared into space. Oh, they always have me working. Day, night, doesn't matter to me. I need the job. She dealt again. I lost again. Sally, I just wanted to say goodbye. I'm heading back to Los Angeles today. Well, she said, goodbye. Hope your movie turns out good. Well, Sally, you could see it when it comes out. She shook her head. No, probably won't. I don't have the time. Nothing plays around here. I'd have to drive. She dealt. I got a king. I looked underneath. Ooh, a queen. That was good. Sally went around the table. She turned over an 18. I won. Sally tossed me a chip and dealt. I had a two showing. I hate that. I took a look at my down card. Impossible. I had a nine underneath. I took a hit. I got a 10. I turned over 21. Sally tossed me another chip. I kept my money on the table, slid out some more chips. $25 on this one bet. Sally looked up at me casually. She dealt. I had an ace showing. I looked under... I had another ace. I took a breath and split them. Sally looked up at me with a certain pride of mentorship. I doubled my bet, $50 on the table. Sally dealt me two down cards, a king and a nine. Sally stuck at 17. I won over $100 on that one hand. I let it ride. Sally reshuffled the deck. Now I realized she was giving me time to rethink my bet. Not me. Not this time. She dealt. I had a three showing. I looked underneath. A two. I took a hit. A four. Took another hit. A five. Damn it. 
14, but five cards under 21 pays double. I looked at my $100 on the table. I could just stick and hope that Sally would bust. No, she wouldn't. I took another hit. A seven, 21. Sally threw me a couple hundred dollars in chips and change. I had won almost $500 in a matter of three minutes. What about one more bet, I thought, just one. I put the whole $500 on the line. So if I lost, I wouldn't be any worse off than when I started. And if I won, I'd be able to go home and show Beth my winnings and explain to her that gambling wasn't really gambling when you know what you're doing. Bets? Bets down, said Sally. I fingered my $100 chips. I pushed them all onto the table. Sally looked at me. I said, wait. I pulled the big chips back and just tossed out one $5 chip. I looked at my fellow players and said, hey, no need to get greedy. I'll just mix it up a bit. Sally dealt. I lost. I bet again. $5. Lost. Thought maybe I was losing because of the no guts, no glory philosophy of gaming. Maybe I had to bet more to win. I threw down a $25 chip. Bust. The other players got up and left the table. It was back to just the two of us. I threw out another $25. Sally didn't look up at me. She just said quietly, take it back. What, I said. Take the chip back. You're done. I looked up at Sally. She stared into the back of my soul. You're done, honey. Pick it up. Walk away. Don't say anything else. I could lose my job for this. Walk away. Good luck. I don't ever want to see you in here again. I pocketed my chips. I made back 400 of the 600 I had lost. Sometimes winning isn't winning. It's just losing less. Sally, if you're out there, if you could hear the sound of my voice, I want you to know I never gambled again, at least not in a casino. I remember the words of my father when we played for toothpicks and pennies with our deck of 34 cards. He said, the only thing you should ever gamble on is yourself. Under the shelter I've been so long Where the sun don't shine Standing at the crossroads Could have went either way That was All In, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, by this point, uh, we have already done the performance live at the Moore Theater. Uh, so that was an awesome experience. Uh, let, me, let me just tell people out there, if, if you don't know what it's like having an impending big show at a theater, it means no sleep. 
means no sleep for have you slept david have you slept at all uh occasionally yeah like <laughs> once every other day I'll, I'll get a few hours while you're driving to work yeah i it is i'm so excited about it but we, we, we should point out the context we are recording this before the more show yep uh even though you are listening to this after the more show so hopefully Something cataclysmic didn't happen that would make like give particular <laughs> irony to what we're how we're joking around about it right now. Oh gosh, yeah, that's like all in, David. We went all in with the Moore Show. We spent more money uh, getting putting the Moore Show on and recording it than I've ever spent in one night in my entire life, other than that one time in Vegas. Yeah, uh, yeah. Other than the one night in Vegas, yeah. yes. So. Yeah, it's it was crazy, but thanks to everyone who made it out. And uh, uh, if you're listening to me say how awesome it was and thank you, then that means that it was awesome, and I didn't edit this out. So how's there for a meta meta commentary for you? Anyway, Stephen, uh, where can people find more episodes of the Tobolowski Files? I think you just said it at thetobolowskifiles.com, and I think you need to spell it correctly, which is T as in Tom, O, B as in boy, O-L-O-W-S-K-Y, the Russian spelling. And I guess you could find me as at uh, Tobolowski on Facebook, on, on Twitter. Yeah, that's right. And Facebook.com slash Stephen Tobolowski. That is correct. And uh, email him at Stephen Tobolowski at gmail.com. He puts his email out there publicly for you know all the stalkers out there so enjoy guys uh thank you for listening to this week's episode of the tobolowski files we'll see you guys later adios <laughs>